Hello. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I am so glad to get to be here um, today as we finish this semester study. The last few months have been personally challenging in a few ways, no huge things, but some hard things. And the study of Exodus has really been my anchor to hold on to God um, during those things. And so I have been super grateful for it. It's been a constant reminder of who God is, that he's faithful, that he's powerful, that he's forgiving, and that he's for me and for his people. Exodus has taught me, reminded me that there is nothing that our God cannot do. I've been encouraged just to stay the course, um, to keep my eyes on God. My strength has been faith, uh, my faith has been strengthened. I hope the same has been true for you as well, and I think it has because I've heard lots of stories of how Exodus has um, impacted many of us through the course of this semester. We began Exodus 1 all the way back in January, which at this moment feels like a long, long time ago. So before we really dive into the end of chapter 33 and the beginning of 34 today, I wanna just take a minute and go back and look at all the ways, or at least some of the ways, God has so powerfully and personally acted on behalf of his people. Back in Exodus 1, when we opened, we remember that the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt, suffering deeply as they had for hundreds of years under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. But God had a plan to rescue his people. That plan began with Moses. He was born during Pharaoh's just very cruel edict that all of the sons of the Hebrews were to be killed at birth, but by faith, remember that Moses' family hid him for three months. Then they put him in that basket in the Nile River at just the right time and place for Pharaoh's daughter to find him. And miraculously, extraordinarily, Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, raised as the grandson of Pharaoh in his palace. Years go by as he's raised in all of the best schooling that Egypt had to offer. He witnesses an Egyptian killing one of his own people, a Hebrew, or uh, beating a Hebrew slave. And then he killed that Egyptian, causing him to have to flee to Midian across the desert where he was for 40 years. He married there, he had a family. But then God very personally spoke to Moses out of that burning bush, called him to go back to Egypt, deliver his people. Pharaoh was unwilling to cooperate when Moses gets back there. So God planned and executed these 10 plagues. They were undeniable, at least from our perspective, acts of the one true God. Remember that that tenth and final plague was um, that terrible event where God killed the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, both the people and the um, animals. It was terrible, but God provided protection for his own people. He instructed them, remember, to paint the doorways of their homes with the blood of that sacrificed lamb so that the angel of death would pass over them in the night. It was that same night that uh, Pharaoh finally relented and told God's people to go. As they fled, God led his people in a cloud by day, a pillar of 
fire at night and miraculously parted the Red Sea, made the ground totally dry, just long enough for his people to pass through before that wall of water closed back in on the Egyptians who had changed their mind and were chasing after the Hebrews. When Israel became hungry on their journey through the wilderness, God miraculously provided bread and meat for them every day. And along the way, God made a covenant with his people. If Israel would obey his voice and live according to his good laws, God himself would bless them, would protect them, and would provide the promised land for them. So God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. He inscribed his law on stone tablets that Moses would instruct his people with. But while Moses was up on that mountain, remember just last week we studied that Israel quickly gets impatient, forgets what God has done for them. Moses' brother Aaron uses their own jewelry to carve that golden calf. The people worship and revel in this pitiful, um, lifeless, powerless thing instead of the one true God who had so powerfully rescued um, the people, had provided for them daily. When Moses comes down from the mountain, sees what the people have done, he angrily drops and shatters those stone tablets that God himself wrote and the covenant between God and his people is shattered. God commands them to leave Mount Sinai, head toward the promised land, but he told them, remember, that he was no longer going to personally go with them and the people began to mourn. So Moses interceded for the people. He pleads with God to change his mind, to go with them because it is God's personal presence that sets Israel apart from everyone else in the world. God graciously accepted Moses' plea on behalf of Israel and that brings us to where we pick up our story today. That's a lot of weeks and um, compacting a lot of information in a small amount of space, but I think it's pretty cool to look back at where Israel has been in just the last few months. But before we go any further, um, notice that when we finish today, we don't get to the end of the book of Exodus. The final chapters in Exodus and a few that we skipped before um, today describe the building of their tabernacle, which is God's dwelling place on earth. And we are going to study those chapters next fall. It will be a great study, so plan to come back for that. So Moses and God are mid-conversation where we pick up our reading today. In Exodus 33:18, Moses is up on the mountain with God. He has just pled um, with God to stay with the people. We start our reading in 33:18, but I'm actually gonna back up and start at 17 if you'd like to follow along with me and we'll go to the end of the chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. That is, um, go with the people into the promised land. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for men shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses makes a request to see God's glory. And I don't know how this request struck you the first time you read it, but honestly, I was taken aback by it. 
Moses and God are in this intense conversation um, about Israel's terrible sin. Moses has already begged for mercy on behalf of his people. They're undeserving, but um, God does relent. And then this, this, my first thought was Moses, God's already been really gracious to you. He has not destroyed Israel. He's keeping his presence close. Maybe that's all the favors you should really be asking. It just felt like too much to me. But the longer I looked at it, the more I began to realize that Moses was simply asking for what he needed most in the whole world, and that was to draw closer to God. He needed to know God more deeply. He needed to experience his glory. Moses is in the thick of this really unenviable task of um, leading the stubborn and sinful people before God. Looming out in front of him is leading them to Canaan, um, guiding them towards trusting and obeying him daily. Um, you know that phrase, it's as hard as herding cats or it's like herding cats. I don't think Moses would have been overly impressed with how hard it is to herd cats. He's trying to herd the Israelites and that has proven to be difficult. He's not finished. God's called Moses to this hard job. In order to do it well, he has to lean hard into God. And he's going to have to do that every day. So I think it's really with great humility and reverence that Moses asks to see God's glory. Instead of it being a presumptuous thing, it was just um, something that he very much needed. He needed to know him more fully than he had ever known God before. So what exactly is God's glory? That is a hard and good question to ask, hard to answer. Psalm 19 on your verse sheet tells us this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I saw the sunrise this morning too and it was amazing and I thought of this verse, um, all of creation really shouts his glory. It's just one aspect of, um, of his glory. Jesus' life on earth was also um, a glimpse for us of his glory. Certainly that doesn't exhaust all of what God's glory means. One way to think of God's glory is just to imagine the infinite beauty and the greatness of God's perfection, his whole character and his whole nature. God grants Moses' request to see his glory and he does it by allowing his goodness to pass by Moses and by proclaiming his name. But we simply cannot see all of God's glory and live. So graciously, lovingly, carefully, God places Moses in the split of this huge rock so that most of his body and vision are obscured. You can imagine if you're standing back inside this crevice that you can't really see to the left or the right. You can just see sort of what's straight in front of you. God protects Moses even further by covering Moses with his hand until he has passed by. He allows Moses to see more of his glory, more of himself than Moses ever has before or ever will again, but not so much that that glory would kill Moses. One theologian said this, as our power of vision is destroyed by looking directly at the brightness of the sun, so would our whole nature be destroyed by an unveiled sight of the brilliancy and the glory of God. And that's a great thought to let sink in by the unveiled sight of the brilliancy and the glory of God. 
What exactly Moses did see is a mystery to us. The Bible reveals much of who God is and what he's like, but as finite, created beings, we really can never know or understand all there is to know about him. We can't know exactly what it was that Moses saw or experienced. And I've been really curious and used my imagination a lot through this study to try to figure out what it was that Moses saw. But truthfully, I'm glad that I don't know exactly. I'm glad that it's true um, that God is so great. He's beyond our full understanding. I'm glad to worship and serve a God who's too great for me to wrap my brain all the way um, around. I know myself well enough to admit my limited understanding and ability of great things. I was thinking this morning that um, as hard as I tried, I could not understand calculus in college even a little bit. And if I couldn't understand calculus, why I think I would be able to understand all of God's glory is a little bit amazing to me. He wouldn't be a God worth worshiping if we really could understand this all the way. But I think it's a great thing to do to to imagine it. So we will never run out of things to learn about God. I think not being able to fully understand what it was that Moses saw, the struggle to understand what uh, what God's glory really is reminds us of that. It reminds us that until we go home to be with him, there will always be more and more to learn about his faithfulness, his greatness, and his glory. There is much in his word about his glory to discover. Um, Experiencing God's glory enables Moses to continue to walk by faith and to do the work that God has called him to. And it can do the same for us as well. Look with me at Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When we see Moses make this request to see God's glory, we are seeing a man who is seeking God first above anything else. And like Moses, we are made to live lives of worship and of trust and of obedience. Like Moses, each of us has work that God has called us to do And we can do this well when we choose to just wholeheartedly pursue God and to pursue his glory, to look for it and to hold on to it when we find it every single day. Look with me at Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. All right, let's continue on in chapter 34. I will um, read verses one through nine. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up to the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two stone tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed behind him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So we remember last week, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after he had been there for 40 days, while he is there, the whole golden calf thing happened. And with that and the breaking of those stone tablets, the covenant between God and his people was broken. That covenant is about to be reinstated, but not just yet. First, God is requiring a do-over for his people. Another set of stone tablets like the first must be cut. Moses has to make another trek up that mountain. Moses has proven to be a man of great faith and patience, clearly cared so deeply about his people. But I wonder if his 80-year-old self was not a little bit grumpy that morning. He had to climb up the mountain with those stone tablets again. I mean, can you really imagine what that was like? God gives another warning that Moses must go alone, that everyone else, all of the animals must stay completely off of that mountain. That would have been out of respect and reverence for God. That was a holy place where God was. God did that as a way to teach them about his holiness, but also to protect them so that his holiness would not consume them. Notice that it's God who takes the initiative every step of the way here. God calls and instructs Moses to come back up that mountain. God descends in the cloud to meet him there. It's God who provides a way for his people to unite with him again. He reveals even more of himself to Moses, beginning in verse six with his proclamation of his name and character than he ever has before. Let me just read those words just in verse six and seven one more time. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. God calls himself Yahweh. That's what the Lord means here. He describes elements of his character It's very similar to what he did at the burning bush, sort of an expansion of that revelation of who he is. How does he describe himself? He's merciful and gracious. gracious. Your Bible might say compassionate and gracious. That means that he genuinely and tenderly cares for his people and that he shows them kind favor that they really don't deserve. He is slow to anger, meaning that he has great patience. We've definitely been witness to that throughout our study of Exodus. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, meaning he has this long-term, reliable loyalty for his people. His people are unfortunately fickle, unreliable, but God is completely faithful. Given their recent worship of that golden calf, the fact that God says that he will forgive sin must have been such sweet words to Moses. But God also describes himself as just. Remember several weeks ago, we learned during the um, week that we studied the 10 commandments that God punishes sin down to several generations. That does not mean that he punishes um, children and grandchildren for something that their parents did that they have no part of, but rather that we generally pass down our faith or our faithlessness to the generations 
Um, in fact, I know we were all wondering last week how it was that Israel could so quickly go to worshiping that golden calf after everything that had just happened to them. The truth is they had lived in Egypt for many generations, witnessed daily idol worship, and that proved to be a hard habit to break. The same thing tends to happen in our own lives, um, whether for good or for bad. Moses later took God's words about himself, these words um, that God speaks about himself back to the people. They were not forgotten. We know that to be true because portions of these verses are used many, many times again in scripture. They, um, they tend to show up especially in the Psalms. So look for those as you continue to study. You'll see how um, the psalmist and um, other writers of the word use God's own description of himself here later on. You know, occasionally we'll hear someone make um, a comment that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and forgiveness. We know that God is God, um, that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. His character never has and never will change. I think God's words about himself here are a great reminder of that and sort of erase that idea that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. He has always been holy. He has always hated sin, but he's also always been compassionate and forgiving to those who call on him in faith. Moses' response to God's declaration is to immediately bow low and worship. Numbers 12.3 on your verse sheet says this. Now the man Moses was very meek or humble more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Surely Moses' deep humility was a result of how well he knew God, how close he had been to God's greatness. I think that gave him a really accurate view of how big God was and how not equal and how small he was in comparison. What a great um, legacy that must have been for him. Worshipfully, humbly, Moses pleased with God for forgiveness. Now Moses had no part in making or worshiping that golden calf. In fact, he had already gone to God on behalf of the people and asked for forgiveness. He had destroyed that idol fully. Nevertheless, he uses here in response to God's declaration of himself, our sin. I think being so close to God in that moment, to his greatness and his glory compelled Moses toward that confession. And I think it gave him an understanding of his own need for forgiveness as well, if not in this and many other areas of his life, I'm sure. So now Moses makes this request, take us for your inheritance. This is part of that do-over because he had already asked for this before he had gone up to the mountain. He says, please be our God. Allow us to be your children. Care for us, protect us, and we will willingly choose again to live under your authority. That was the essence of God's first covenant with Moses. He's asking here that that covenant be reinstated. He's asking for a restoration of that intimate two-way relationship between God and his people that had been broken. At the beginning of our passage today, Moses began by asking to see God's glory. God fulfills that desire. His, immediately, his, immediately, his immediate response was humble worship, Moses was. Then he confessed his sin. He finally made his plea. This is an excellent pattern for us to follow in our own walk with God as well. Daily, we can choose to seek 
God first, not the things we want or need from him, but just him. So how do we do this? One way, and that's what we do here, is to read his word with the intention of getting to know him. My favorite places to do that are the Psalms and um, also the Gospels. The Psalms are full of descriptions of God's nature, his personality, his character. The Gospels are full of the stories of who Jesus is and what he said and did. Those are great places I have found to get to know God personally. Uh, Places to ponder and store up who he is, just to seek his personality, and his glory. Then, in light of his holiness and glory, confessing our sins seems like a real natural next step for those of us who have placed our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our sins are already forgiven, past, present, and future. But confessing those sins to the Lord, as soon as we're aware of them, allows us to stay in close relationship with God and to experience his glory more fully. When I offend somebody in my family, we're still family, but my offenses often cause distance between us. When I go back to them and ask for forgiveness and choose to stop doing that wrong thing, our close relationship is stored. It's the same between the Lord and I. After worshiping God for his greatness and glory, confessing our sin, our hearts are ready to ask him for what we truly need. And of course, we have very real and pressing needs in our lives that we should be asking him for. Um, But sometimes when we really allow ourselves to just worship the Lord for who he is and to focus on um, his glory, it allows us to understand how much we need him Um, And sometimes those things that we think we need or want become less pressing in light of that. Look with me at 1 Chronicles 16. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. That's a part of a song that was sung by King David who I think very much pursued the person of God himself. As we go through our daily lives, we can be like Moses, we can be like King David, we can be women who respond to God's glory with genuine worship and to seek him. The time has come finally for God to renew his covenant with Israel. I'm going to read just verses 10 through 12 in, verses, in chapter 34. And he said, this is God speaking, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the works of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you all of the people that are in the promised land. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of that land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. I'm going to stop right there for now. So not only does God prepare and promise to renew the covenant, but he gives assurance that he will personally drive out the pagans in the promised land so that his people can live there forever. This is not a brand new covenant that is being made, but rather a renewal of that covenant that was made with the people through Moses that was broken earlier because of their disobedience. I wanna take just a second and look back at God's words when he offers that original covenant in Exodus 19 on your verse sheet. 
Here's what he originally said. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. After God speaks in chapter 19, you might remember that the next few chapters we studied were the Ten Commandments, and then all of those secondary laws regarding property rights and restitution and social justice and other topics as well. Because the covenant is being renewed here, God restates and summarizes many points of his law for the rest of chapters 34. For the sake of time, and because we have studied those before, I'm going to just do a quick summary of those. In short, the people are never to practice idol worship. They're never to make any covenants with other nations, and they're to keep the yearly feasts and weekly Sabbath. God strongly prohibits his people from making any covenant with any pagan nations. The only covenant they are to be making are with him. They're to tear down any pagan idols that they come across and they're never ever to make another one of their own again. You can see exactly why God would begin here. It's um, an area of weakness for the Israelites for sure. And it's something that they've just been dealing with. He describes himself as a jealous God, meaning that he rightly desires to be the only person or object that they worship. He wants to be worshiped alone. A God whose glory would kill a man by looking directly at it, who is the creator and the ruler of the whole heaven and earth, but who's also merciful and gracious and kind and forgiving and patience deserves to be worshiped alone. God also reminds his people to keep those feasts that he has put in place throughout the year because those feasts are an ongoing reminder of God's constant provision and faithfulness. He's very purposeful in the laws that he restates here. Now drop down with me to verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. That is God actually who wrote those words again, like he did the first time. And it's Moses who will write out those secondary laws to share with the people. Moses spends 40 days and nights fasting. He's, he spent 40 days and nights fasting when he received that original 10 commandments. Here in what continues to be very much a do-over, he again fasts for another 40 days and nights. Look at Deuteronomy 9, 18 with me on your verse sheet. This is actually Moses writing um, in the future about this incident. It explains um, some of this. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed and doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So we see why it was that he fasted for those 40 days and 40 nights again this time. While it's possible to live 40 days without food, it is impossible to go 40 days without water or anywhere near that. So we know that Moses' life was miraculously sustained by God during this period of fasting. Moses' leadership and care of his people is remarkable through the book of Exodus, I think his willingness to do this here 
just so much shows that leadership he had and the deep love he had for his people. So what can we glean from God's willingness to renew his covenant with his people? Despite Israel's sin, God is moving forward in his plan to bless his people, to make them a great nation, and to give them a land of their own. There were great consequences for Israel after they had made and worshiped that golden calf. There are consequences often for our sin as well, but God had just declared himself to be merciful and forgiving. Character qualities that are based on his greatness, not on our worthiness. He's the same God as we said before, yesterday, today, and forever. So we know that he is just as merciful and forgiving for us as he was for Israel. I hope this story of God's graciousness and forgiveness and this story of him allowing a do-over for the people after that terrible error encourages us. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. When we place our trust in that truth, we are completely forgiven. After worshiping that golden calf, the people endured the anger of God, the death of many of their own, a plague that swept through the land. But here's what you don't see next from God's people. You don't see them give up on following God. You don't see them say, I can't do this. We're too bad. I've messed up too many times. That was the dumbest thing ever. We're no longer qualified for kingdom work. God would never forgive this. Um, Moses, don't even try. They messed up badly and they grieved God's heart. But Moses, on their behalf, went to God, asked for forgiveness, followed God's plan to make things right again. And you see things being made right again here. Sometimes in our own struggles with sin, whether it's a sin that's recurrent or uh, maybe just a really big sin, we, we have the desire sometimes to just give up and say, you know what, I can't do this, I can't get this right, I'm not even going to try. I hope this story encourages us to not give up on pursuing God's glory and not give up on pursuing our holiness. As believers, we have his Holy Spirit living within us. That empowers us to trust and obey him. If necessary, we sometimes have to take the consequences of our sin, but we keep coming back to God over and over. We know that we're his children, that we belong to him. Let's just remember this story and be encouraged and continue to go back to him as many times as we need to. Look with me at Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. Let's be women who pursue holiness, resting in the truth that he forgives our sin. So let's continue on. Let's read our last section where we will revisit God's glory and what it means for his followers. Read with me, beginning in chapter 34, verse 29, and we are, we'll go down to the end of the chapter. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two stone tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. 
and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, we don't know exactly what Moses' face looked like. It would be hard to put into words because it would be unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. I don't think any of us have ever seen anyone whose face was literally shining with God's glory. But we do know this. After 40 days alone with God in God's presence, Moses' face literally shone with his glory. It's certainly possible that it shone so brightly that it would hurt his eye, the people's eyes to look directly at him like looking at the sun. What we do know is that, God, that Moses had been so close to God's glory, which is so great that it literally caused his face to reflect God himself. It's an amazing thing to imagine. When everyone first saw Moses and his shining face, it understandably scared them. I can just picture them sort of backing away, wondering what in the world that was. When we're not right with God, confronting his holiness can be painful. It's possible that the visual evidence that Moses had just been so close to God reminded them how much, um, how distant they themselves had been from God. how much they had distanced themselves. It'd be hard to miss the fact that Yahweh is the one true God and that he alone was worthy of worship and praise. Being in the presence of that golden calf had not caused anyone's face to shine with glory. It had to have been convicting. But when Moses called them all to him and gave them that great news that God had renewed that broken covenant and that he would go before them and with them into the promised land, that he would be responsible for driving out their enemy and that he still intended to, uh, to live with them and give them his peace and protection and his laws. I can only imagine what great joy there must have been for the people in that camp. And now after he comes down from the mountain, Moses would go back and forth between that tent where God would come down and dwell with him and speak with him. And then he would go back to the people When he spoke with the people, he veiled his face in order to shield them from that brightness. It wasn't necessary to have a a veiled face in the presence of God, so there he could uncover this face. His face, I love the picture that that intimacy shows between him and the Lord. It was a great gift for Moses to be allowed to come so near to God to be exposed to so much of his glory and then to convey that as best as he could back to his people. But for Christians, the truth is we have something even better, um, an even more remarkable gift. Paul talks about this in the New Testament. We have God's Holy Spirit living within us, a constant um, presence with God and his constant presence with us at all times. And his presence with us will never fade like the fading um, glory of God from Moses' own face. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces 
behold the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image that is becoming more like God, um, or being more um, God-like in our personality, being sanctified, um, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When Christ followers keep God's glory in constant view, our own lives shine with his light. Being with God transformed Moses' face into a reflection of his glory. Drawing near to Jesus transforms our lives into a reflection of his glory. Let's be women who draw near daily to God. Let's be women who daily reflect his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we just praise you. You're good and you're able and you're forgiving and you're just and you were so mighty to save. We can't get to the end of your glory as we learned today, but I'm asking that we would be women who try, um, that we would pursue you with our whole lives, with our hearts and our minds. You're far better to us than we deserve, God. We thank you. Um, I pray that you would bless every woman in this room. Um, that we would go from here reflecting um, your glory, living according to your light. Um, it's an honor, God, to walk with you, and we thank you for being our God. It's in your holy name we pray, amen.